So the message today is going to be in a couple of parts. There's going to be part one, looking a bit at this passage, and I'll share some reflections. And then there's going to be a, a bit of quiet time for you guys to take that in and to reflect yourselves in a certain way. And then we'll move on and we'll have a, a second part, which will lead us back into worship at the end. So just a little bit of context before I jump into the reading. So it's often easy, isn't it, when we, when we know the individual stories in the Bible to forget where things fit and what's happened already and what's still to come. So in Genesis, we hear that we read the story of Joseph, who, um, as we are probably all very familiar with, gets taken um, to Egypt, gets sold by his brother, ends up in Egypt and grows in favor and, and ends up Pharaoh's right-hand man in Egypt. And through that difficult process for Joseph, the rest of his family are saved from famine because Egypt has planned ahead because God warned Joseph what's going to happen. Joseph's family comes, joins him in Egypt, and they settle there. We then get a bit right at the start of the book of Exodus that says, Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous so that the land was filled with them. Then a new king who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become much too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And it goes on. So the Israelites go from a place of blessing, saving from famine, to being oppressed by the Egyptians because they're afraid there's too many of them now and, and can they really be trusted to be on our side. And then there's, there's years of that and, and the story of Moses being saved as a baby and so on. And then we come to the, the plagues of Egypt and then we come to this passage and I'm going to start just a bit before chapter 14 from verse 17 of chapter 13. But let me pray before I read. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it's freely available to us. Thank you that it is living and active. Thank you that it's got stuff to teach us and that it's relevant. And Father, I pray that as we read, as we take it in with our eyes as we take it in with our ears that you'd be revealing truth to us that you'd be speaking to each one of us maybe about completely different things but that you'd be speaking what needs to be spoken and that we would have the ears to hear it amen so settle in i hope you're sitting comfortably because it's quite a long reading today and i hope i didn't make a note of where i need to change the slides so i'm just going to back away slightly so that hopefully it will match what's on the screen so, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road towards the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt ready for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him because Joseph had made the Israelites swear an oath. He had said, God will surely come to your aid. And then you must carry my bones up with you from this place. After Sukkoth, they camped at Etham on the edge of the desert. 
By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and camp near Pi-Hahiroth between Migdol and the sea. They are to camp by the sea directly opposite Baal-Zephon. Pharaoh will think, the Israelites are wandering around in the land, the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his official, officials changed their minds about them and said, What have we done? We've let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots along with all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near Pi-Hahiroth, opposite Baal-Zephon. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done by bringing us out of, out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, Leave us alone. Let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of the Lord, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other. So neither went near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And all that night, the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He jammed the wheels of their chariots so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand 
over the sea, and at daybreak the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing towards it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground, with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day, the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. Just take a breath after that long reading. So I've called part one in my talk, The Eyes of Hope. So we're just going to think a little bit about what having eyes of hope might mean. And um, Caroline's touched on it already, the importance of remembering. I was talking to her about it this week, and she's very humble and not saying that actually she wrote the song that has the line in it, by remembering we keep a grip on hope. And I don't know, it must be, it's over 10 years now, I imagine, but that line, I, I was saying, I was very honest with her in a week. I said, I can't, I can't remember a thing about the rest of the song. No idea what the name of the song is, anything else. But that line has stayed with me for over 10 years. Just think the power of remembering to give you hope, particularly when you're remembering what God's done. And a few years ago, I was really struck by this story that we've just read. In the context when it happens, the Egyptians have just seen amazing things. They've seen a river turn from water into blood. They've seen plagues of frogs and locusts appear and disappear at the Lord's command. They've seen amazing things. And they've gone from a place where they are completely and utterly oppressed by the Egyptians. There's no way out. There's no way, out. There's no way that they could have freed themselves. And they've seen God deliver them in amazing ways. And yet, we don't, know, we don't know, to be fair to them, we don't know how long they've been out of Egypt, how long this, it's taken to get from the Passover to the crossing of the Red Sea. But it, it should be within their memories that they've seen amazing things. And yet, they look up and they see the Egyptians coming, the water behind them, they think, we're penned in. And what's their response? Their response is panic. Their response is to blame Moses. Their response is, oh my goodness, what, we should have just stayed in Egypt. I know we were slaves, but let's just, we could have stayed there. There were graves there. We'd have died there. We'd have been buried there. Let's just stay in Egypt. The power of remembering gives you hope. Now, you, can't, you couldn't have expected them to go, ah, oh, I know, God's going to split this great big bit of water behind us, and we're just going to walk through but you can expect them to go, hang on a minute, we've seen God do amazing things. Our God is a God of deliverance. Our God is a God of rescue. He will do something. We'll, we'll trust him. We'll have hope. Another thing about remembering is it reminds you that you've been here before. You've been here before. It's not a new thing. Okay, maybe you've never been pinned between an Egyptian army and a sea, but it's, it's the same thing underneath. It's just wearing a different face. It's the same fear. It's the same pressure. It's the same stressor. Well, you've been here before, and you've seen God act before, so you can trust him to act again. Maybe it'll be in a way that you really don't expect. 
Maybe it won't have quite the impact that you were hoping for, but you know that he is a God who acts when you remember. I think one of the things that really reminded me the importance of looking at the context is I'd, I knew about the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire, but I think I'd thought that was after the Red Sea. That was when they're in the promised land or going you know, through the wilderness towards the promised land. But it's before. It was in chapter 13 at the end. So God's presence hasn't left them. There's a great big cloud and fire right in your vision. It's not even, oh, I can't, can't remember what happened last year when we were in Egypt and God did amazing things. There's a great big pillar of fire in front of you. God's presence hasn't left you. How do you remember that? What signs are there in your life that you're, you're, you're meeting God? God's presence hasn't left you. And if you can't feel it, which, let's face it, sometimes you just can't feel. You feel like God's left you. But actually remembering that his promises to never leave, whether we feel it or not, he's there and we can trust. I was really struck by... Um, in chapter 14, verse 14, where Moses is answering the people and, and he's telling them, stand firm, you'll see deliverance from the Lord. And he says, you need only to be still. I'm not very good at being still. And I, I always read that and think, oh, that means you just have to be still. And it'll be all fine. Just, you know, let it go. It will be fine. And I don't think that's what it means. I think being still is incredibly active in this situation. It's not a passive, just let it go type, be still. It's an active do not give in to the panic that is threatening to take over. Be still. It's a real effort. Do not give in to the temptation to just blame everyone else for the situation. Don't give in. Be still. And then towards the end of the, uh, end of the story, it's quite gruesome. I was surprised by the, it actually says a verse, some translations say they saw the bodies of the Egyptians on the shore. I think, ooh, it's a bit gruesome. It's going to be at least a 15 if it was a film. But, what, but why is that there? Why is it important that the Israelites would see the evidence that God's victory is complete? So often we can let the kind of the phantoms of Things past, kind of the lies of the enemy tell us that they're still alive, they're still there, they're coming back. But actually, God can show us the bodies of the enemy. And obviously, for us, that ultimately is shown in the cross that actually the body of the enemy, the power of the enemy is defeated. And remembering that is so important to giving us hope. I've got way behind on this, but here we go. A little reminder, the importance of remembering that God's presence hasn't left, that we can be still in a very active way, and that God shows the defeat of his enemies. And let's face it, life is full of battles and blessings. I don't think... I don't think probably any of us would ever be in a position where everything, absolutely everything, was a was blessing. There was no area of our life, spiritual, emotional, physical, relational, anything, where we were not having some kind of battle. It's really interesting, isn't it? 
I started the reading as far back as I did because I thought it was so interesting. That very first verse, seven, 17 of chapter 13 says, When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. How interesting. Because they did face a battle. They got pinned by the Red Sea and, and it looked like they had to have a, face a battle. So why would it have been different in the Philistine country? I think if they went straight to the Philistine country, they'd have had to actually battle. And we see later, don't we, as they go move into the promised land, that there's lots of battling. So it's not as if the route God chose avoided all battling of any kind. But it's just so interesting that God knows the best route, and it's not always the route that we think. And just because they went through the Red Sea and they, they saw God do this amazing act of deliverance, there were still battles to fight later on. And we know, don't we, that they didn't always get it right. They didn't always do the right thing. When the, um, the prophets talk of hope, they often talk about it at a number of levels. So I heard an analogy once that was um, talking about how with a landscape like that, you can see layers of hills and mountains. And what the, the prophets can do so well is talk about all layers of things all in one, maybe even in one sentence, one paragraph. So they, might, they often see disaster in the foreground. So the hills, they can see that there's disaster. But they look beyond and they can also see hope, the mountains in the background. So Isaiah chapter 9 comes after a chapter that's about the invasion of the Assyrian army taking over. So he's just talked about disaster is coming. And then he says very familiar words for this time of year. Nevertheless, that time of darkness and despair will not go on forever. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali will be humbled, but there will be a time in the future when Galilee of the Gentiles, which lies along the road that runs between the Jordan and the sea, will be filled with glory. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. You will enlarge the nation of Israel and its people will rejoice. And it goes on and ends obviously with the, for a child is born to us, a son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord of Heaven's armies will make this happen. So this is two chapters right next to each other in the Bible. One that talks of disaster is on the way and one that talks of the people walking in darkness will see the great light of this child that is given to us. And it's interesting when you see a, a picture like that or you see it in the, in the flesh perhaps, it's almost impossible from that vantage point to see how far is between the hills so how far is it distance-wise? How far are the, the kind of tree-covered hill 
hills behind that church on the top of the mound in the foreground. It's difficult to tell. And how far away are those mountains? It can sometimes be deceptive. And this, this passage in Isaiah that talks about the people walking great in darkness, seeing light, when it comes to Matthew f- chapter 4, when Jesus is just starting his ministry, it says, when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he, went, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light, and so on. So there's an element that Jesus is coming and the beginning of his ministry is a a fulfillment of part of that Isaiah prophecy that there'll be light and that there'll be a kingdom that will never end. But maybe that's not the, the ultimate. We know that that's not completely fulfilled yet. That hope that Isaiah was looking forward to is still only partly, uh, has only partly come about. There's other layers to it. And sometimes the eyes of having eyes of hope is, is a real choice to see not just the disaster in the foreground, not just bits and pieces, but to see the, the real picture at the back, the hills of hope at the back. Now, that is not a picture I've taken. It's not as blurry as I thought it might be. That's good. Um, does anyone know where that is? Any guesses? Isle of Wight. Correct. So that is the Isle of Wight, seen from the mainland of the UK, the south coast, down near Southampton, between probably Southampton and Bournemouth. And my, my dad lives near there, so uh, I often go down there. And you, on a good day, you get a view like that, and you think, oh, that's really nice, with the Isle of Wight. And then you might just be able to see on the right-hand side of the island the needles, which are some sort of columns of rock. This is a picture I took over Christmas. Now, granted, it's slightly from a different place and probably slightly further away from the Isle of Wight, but it's pretty hard to see the Isle of Wight. You definitely can't see the needles. They, they were invisible. You can just about make out the island, but it's still there, and it still is the same as that. So sometimes life feels like that, and you can see it all clearly, and you feel like, actually, the hope is so clear. And sometimes it feels like that, and you think, it doesn't look good. I can't see anything. I can't feel it. What's going on? Everything's changed. And yet, it's still there. And it's an active choice to remember and to choose to believe in the face of that. Now, I want to give you some time to reflect a bit before I bring it to a close. So um, I want to give you a few minutes. There's some, there is some paper and there are some pencils around if you don't have something to write on you and you'd like to. Um, but just to reflect a bit on, any, well, anything, of course. If you feel like God's prompted you about anything, think about that, please. Don't worry about anything I prompt you with. Um, but what do you need to remember from 2019? Are there things that, places that God's been at work in your life or are there lessons that he's taught you that you need to remember to give you hope for the year ahead? And how can you cultivate those eyes of hope? So I'm going to give you a few minutes and then um, I'll draw us back in 
and lead us into then our final worship. So that's been about four minutes. That's not a lot of reflecting. I'd really encourage you to try and find some time as we go into this year to continue with those reflections and to continue talking to God about remembering and hope. I was talking just now about the beginning of Jesus' ministry in the Gospel of Matthew. But in the Gospel of Luke, there's a point where Jesus goes into the synagogue and reads the scriptures. And it's the passage from Isaiah that talks about the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me. Because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor and so on. And the bit that he quotes is followed by um, a verse that sa- the verses that say... Um, so it's, it follows on from the sentence, he has sent me to, and it says, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. I think that's really interesting. If I was thinking of something to sort of counteract despair, I might think of a garment of hope or a garment of blessing But it talks about a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. So I just want to spend a few minutes before we uh, go back into a time of worship talking about why praise. So the second part is called the power of praise. After the Israelites went through the Red Sea, the first thing they do, the, the very next words after the end of the reading I read, then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. And then follows a whole chapter of them singing out about what God's just done. And so obviously part of praise is celebrating, celebrating who God is and what he's done. I often think um, songs help us to remember things as well. It links back into remembering. It doesn't, obviously praise doesn't have to be singing. You can speak out praise, you can write it down, but there's, Time and again in the Bible, you see people singing songs of praise and declaring who God is and what he's done through song. Um, And I think that's, I mean, that's just a fact. It's easy to remember. If I asked you to recite your favorite passage of scripture, you'd probably struggle, most of you. I certainly would. But if I asked you to tell me the words to your favorite song or maybe even just a Christmas carol, you'd probably be able to take quite a good stab at it. So songs can help us remember and there's a, there's a verse in Psalm 22 that says, it, it's in slightly different in different translations. It says um, in one translation, the Lord inhabits our praises. In others, it talks about him being um, exalted in, in our praises. And um, for those of you who, who were here a few months back when I spoke before about the, the uh, kingdom of God, remember you might remember the PowerPoint had some cir- different colored circles on the screen and it talked about Um, the kingdom of God and this world and how they interact and overlap. And I think when we praise God and when we speak truth about who he is, that's that's declaring the right way over this world. This world is under the power of sin and darkness in so many ways. And we're declaring the truth. Actually, the true victory has been won by Jesus. And so when we praise that out, there's something that happens in the spiritual atmosphere. And the Lord's presence is in that very praise. There's power in that. It's, a, it's declaring our allegiance with God and not with 
the disaster in the foreground that we see. And I think there's also real power in something, praise is something we can do together. And it's something that we can do, and, and it's powerful when we praise on behalf of other people. When other people just cannot summon up that praise to come out of them, they're exhausted, they're battle-hardened. Actually, we can praise corporately, and that covers over each one of us. And then it also, I love it that in the Old Testament, um, they often appointed worshippers to go out ahead of the army. I'm not sure I really would want to do that. That sounds very scary. But isn't that amazing that you didn't put the people with the pointiest swords at the front of the army? You put the worshippers, you put the guys with the trumpets and the, I don't know, what else they had? Harps, maybe, I don't know. But it's a proactive thing, worship. It's not, oh, we're just singing some songs because it's kind of nice and sounds good. It's powerful, so powerful that that was what was at the head of the army. There's been a song that has been going around my head, I guess, for, it's for a few months for various reasons. But this week has just been going round and round. Um, I think it's actually part of a bigger song that was written. But it seems like God has really been speaking and working through two short sections of it because it's lots of different people have recorded versions of it. Um, and I've just found it really powerful in thinking about this sort of thing. And the two parts, are the, the first one just says, this is how I fight my battles. And so just picking up on that idea that praise is a battling thing. It's not, I'm going to take time out and sing a nice song. Actually, no. Getting really stuck into praise is a battling thing. So this is how I fight my battles. And then, the, yeah, the bit that's just moved me completely is this bit that says, it may look like I'm surrounded, but I'm surrounded by you. And that really, for me, that just links everything together, the eyes of hope, that actually choosing when disaster is all around, some of these things that we were praying for, when there's bushfires all around, when there's poor health all around, it may look like I'm surrounded, but I'm surrounded by you. God. And we, we know that, that that's not a line from Scripture, but it's backed up by so much. There's so much in the Psalms about God's wings being around and inside and underneath is a place of refuge. So 2020, I don't know what your hopes are and what you're thinking might be part of your year. But I can promise you there'll probably be some battles in various ways, maybe big ones, maybe small ones. What are you going to do in the battles? Are you going to remember that you've seen God act before and that you've got therefore got hope that he will act again? Are you going to proactively praise him, declaring truth over the situation, declaring truth over your life? I'd like to encourage us as we finish, Kaz and the band are going to come back and we're going to end today with a longer time of worship than we not often have at the end. Um, and it's going to be mostly praise-focused to give us an opportunity to start this year praising God, battling. Maybe, maybe you're going through something now that's a battle to you and you can take a step this morning to actually praise in the midst of the battle as a proactive thing.
maybe it would be another situation, someone else's situation, some of the things we were praying for earlier, Johnny and Joy, that you can praise on their behalf, that you can praise and declare God's truth and the power of his presence over them through your praises. So let me invite you to stand, and then I'm going to hand over to Caroline and the band, and they'll lead us. Father, thank you that you are the same God yesterday, today, and forever. Thank you that you are a God of deliverance, of rescue. And thank you, Jesus, that you have shown that the hope that there is for the future. Whatever we see in the foreground at the moment, God, we can see with those eyes of hope that you are victorious. And we lift you high with our praises, Jesus. Amen.